Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? I'm doing good. Good to be back with you, Kyle. Yeah, good to be back together. Good to be back for another episode of Peach Pod. We got a a packed show for you guys this week. Um, So... On this week's show, we're going to talk about uh, three big things. We're going to talk about the final state of the state delivered by Governor Nathan Deal. On Thursday of last week, he delivered his final annual address on how the state is doing to the legislature. There were a lot of tears shed, most of them by Governor Deal during his speech. It was it was a nice speech, uh, and it was a nice little farewell for the governor um, in his final year in office. So we're going to talk about the contents of that speech and where deals right off into the sunset leaves Georgia politics going into the governor's race in next year. Um, and then for our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the third policy proposal released by Stacey Abrams. She's a Democratic candidate for governor. Um, she released her own economic mobility plan, which includes a basket of policies that are meant to make it easier for lower and lower middle income people in the state to rise up the income ladder and have more economic opportunity for themselves. So she's got some really interesting ideas in here, some that are new, some that we've talked about before on this show and have been around in Georgia policy discussions before, but a lot of interesting stuff from Stacey Abrams, uh, as usual, in these proposals that she puts out. So we're going to talk about that one. And then for our third topic this week, we're going to talk about a Supreme Court case that is looking at a policy that the that Ohio uses to remove voters from their voter rolls. Ohio claims it's a way for them to manage their voter rolls, but uh, civil rights advocates say that the process that Ohio uses is similar, is uh, is one that makes it disproportionately harder for lower income people and people of color in Ohio to vote. Uh, the reason that we're talking about that is Georgia has a very similar process to Ohio. And so what the court decides in this Ohio case is probably going to have some relevance to Georgia procedures. And all of this brings up a need for the discussion of how to make it easier for people to vote instead of how to make it harder, because whether or not you think that this policy is good, um, it does make it more difficult for people to vote and to stay registered to vote. So we're going to talk about some ideas for making voting easier. Uh, Before we get started, though, we're going to talk about the shitstorm that hit Washington this week. And that was a shithole of a ciggy. Yeah, and that was a comment made. Actually, I'm going to take offense to that one because this is a nice neighborhood I live in in D.C. But this was a this is the only segment of the show we're going to curse in. We're probably going to curse a lot in this segment, though. Earlier, we're this not week, cursing or quoting. There, there's a big yeah, difference. Yeah, yeah. Plus, all the other media outlets uh, quote cursed a lot this week. To get to what happened last week, Donald Trump was in a meeting with senators where they are trying to work out a final deal on immigration reform. Um, they are on the verge of shutting the government down. The government is only funded through January 19th. And one of the big hurdles left for these negotiations is what to do to continue the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program. Uh, This is a program that has allowed um, young people who were brought to the U.S. when they were children under no fault of their own to maintain their uh, legal status in this country. And potentially out of these negotiations, there's going to be maybe citizenship or some more formal legal status for them that comes out of it. But the story of the week out of this negotiation was basically the collapse of negotiations. uh, When Donald Trump said, 
in a discussion of why people from Haiti and African countries were coming to the U.S., uh, Donald Trump said, why do we need more people from these shithole countries? And this was a comment that blew up Washington. The There were a few senators that came out of the meeting that confirmed, yes, that this did happen. Uh, but interestingly, a lot of Georgians have come into this discussion this week and after the Sunday shows this weekend. David Perdue was on with uh, George Stephanopoulos on ABC, and he denied that the president made the remarks that basically everyone else in the meeting confirmed actually happened. Um, So here's David Perdue with George Stephanopoulos trying to set the record straight on that. This is about a gross misrepresentation. It's not the first time. These people have been trying for 35 years to solve this immigration problem without success for one reason, and that is I don't believe they're serious about trying to solve that right now. You just said that what Senator Durbin said the president, the words the president used were not used. You said that, that that did not happen. But it's not just Senator Durbin who said that. I mean, Senator Lindsey Graham has put out a statement saying that he countered the president's words in the moment. And he told his Republican colleague from South Carolina, Tim Scott, that the reports of of that meeting were basically accurate. Those comments had been confirmed by by multiple sources. You're saying it didn't happen? Multiple sources? There were six of us in the room. I haven't heard any of those six sources other than, than Senator Durbin talk about what was said. Look, well, this Senator Graham told Senator the Scott that the reports meeting. were basically accurate. Well, that's, you don't have to deal with him. Basically, is an operative word. The trouble here is that Senator Durbin came and brought a proposal. Let's put this in perspective. But, but, you know, but I want to get to the serious... proposal, but you're saying, you're saying flat out, definitively, the president did not say those words. I'm saying that this is a gross misrepresentation. It's not the first time Senator Durbin has done it, and it is not productive to solve so the problem. So what did the president say? Most people in America, George, want us to solve the DACA situation. Republicans and Democrats. A billion dollars. I want to get more on that. But, 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 but just to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not clear on exactly what you're saying happened in this meeting. You say it was a gross misrepresentation. Senator Durbin has been very clear. Senator Graham has told others that the reports were basically accurate. Are you saying the president did not use the word that has been so widely reported? I'm telling you he did not use that word, George, and I'm telling you it's a gross misrepresentation. How many times do you want me to say Um, that? So, Luke, I'll I'll let you jump in here. What what did you think? What is David Perdue doing here? Uh, I think David Perdue is doing what David Perdue does, which is be one of the number one cheerleaders for Donald Trump. Uh, It's it's a fascinating thing because I think we've talked about this before, but, like, David Perdue has a very similar, like, resume to Donald Trump. Like, he's kind of a smarter Donald Trump who predicted his rise in a lot of ways because his campaign, while not nearly as inflammatory as Donald Trump's, is honestly pretty similar. You know, he went into a field of a lot of highly qualified public servants who had been government for a long time as a businessman who had never served in government, ran a pretty far-right campaign that said some controversial things and beat a bunch of people who... Uh, no one watching the political landscape of Georgia thought would have been beaten by an outsider who had the benefit of really high name recognition. So, you know, on that front, they're they're kind of kindred spirits. So I think that's really like what Purdue is is doing here. The other sort of relevant thing to note here is that David Purdue and Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. They're currently working on immigration legislation that would limit the amount of legal immigrants that get to come to the country, and they are angling for this proposal that they have to be a part of any kind of deal that comes out of these negotiations over the DACA program. And so 
Purdue and Cotton were both on the Sunday shows to stick up for Trump and say that, oh, this didn't happen or it was being grossly misrepresented in the press. Um, and so they're the they're sort of the only ones in the Republican Party that have like stuck out their necks for Donald Trump on this comment this week. Uh, but I think well, it's because you know, I, they're I think, trying to push their bill. Well I, well, I think I think that's right. I think this is you know the apt moment to say what I'm happy to see that a couple other uh, media outlets have said, which is Donald Trump is a racist. Full stop. Like this is just one of many comments that Donald Trump has said over the years that makes it quite clear that he has racially biased views and is a racist. Uh, I could go down the litany of them, but I don't think we need to. So. In the context that is very clear and, re, you know, we are reminded of today, Donald Trump is a racist and is also president. It, with that in mind, what you say is also true, that Tom Coggin and David Perdue, the two people who have been defending him the most, are pushing an immigration bill, which is also racist. So, with that in mind, it is advantageous to them to defend Donald Trump and lie about his statement because they are trying to push a bill that matches their worldview, which probably is quite similar to Donald Trump's worldview. And in that sense, it's important for them to have some excuse besides we're racists and we're pushing this bill for racial reasons. And so if Donald Trump is publicly advocating for his position, which is also their position for racial reasons, then they are also racists. And if it's a newsflash to you that Donald Trump is a racist, look back at any of the Sunday shows from this weekend. One of the bad parts for Donald Trump about having this comment become the whole immigration negotiation and issue this week is that all of the Sunday shows played clips of Trump over the years going back to the 1970s or 80s. I think it was when his company was discriminatory towards African-Americans and the housing developments that they ran all the way through his comment about Mexican immigrants during the campaign and what he said about Charlottesville, uh, the good people on both sides, according to Donald Trump. Um, all of those clips got played again and everyone got reminded that Donald Trump is a racist. So uh, good job on him for really keeping the spotlight on the important things this week. And, and one thing I say, too, that's really important to point out because we're really easy to to fall in this uh trap as well i mean lindsey graham also like was there he's a republican uh he strongly condemned these statements and one again confirmed them that donald trump actually said this so like yeah so like this is not this is not like dick durbin and uh if there's any other democrats in the room i'm not sure but like it's not like dick durbin just like decided that oh i could lie and say donald trump said you know said this horrible statement and it's like no it's like there's other people who were there that actually is probably politically disadvantageous for them to point out that donald trump said these things but they're still making it very clear that he did say them so you know the the word of tom cogging and david Perdue is not two people i i trust very heavily especially on this issue and another Republican to condemn Trump over these comments was Georgia's own Johnny Isaacson. Uh, here's what he had to say. Uh, this was played on Meet the Press on Sunday morning. That is not the kind of statement the leader of the free world ought to make, and he ought to be ashamed of himself. All right. So with that, I think I think we'll leave that there. <laughs> not another uh, bright week here in Washington. Um, this is something that's why that we is... should move on to Georgia, a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful place, the Empire State of the South, where everything's yeah. fine. There are no problems. 
<laughs> no dumpster well, fires. Well, that's what the voters of Georgia believe. We'll, we'll talk about that here as we transition into our first topic. Um, there's some AJC polling that was out earlier this week that said voters are pretty happy about what's going on in Georgia and pretty pissed about what's going on in Washington. But to transition here into Georgia, so Governor Deal made his final State of the State address this week, um, and he used the speech to focus primarily on what he's accomplished in his eight years as governor, um, some of the things that he's most proud of, including criminal justice reform and maintaining the state's ranking or, or making the state the number one state to do business and then maintaining that ranking for, I think, five consecutive years is what he said. Um, those were two of the the key things that he mentioned during his speech. Uh, but there were a lot of things on his list that he was very proud of. And so the speech was really a walkthrough of how him and his administration had created these orchards of opportunity in the state. And that was a metaphor that he used throughout. Um, Luke, what I know is you, dealing like we, with like really forced metaphors in his state of the state? Well, I think that's what I think that's what state of the states are for. Uh, this is actually something that Jim Galloway said at uh, Georgia Political Rewind, is that the the requirement of state of the states is that you take a metaphor and torture it to death between start and finish of the speech. <laughs> well, Governor Deal has definitely accomplished that. Yeah, uh, the state of the metaphor is strong in Governor Deal's uh, speeches. Um, but Luke, what did you think of this speech just generally? Um, what did you think about Governor Deal's victory lap um, in his final year as governor? Well, I think it's sort of weird because that's exactly what it is. Like it was a victory lap and it was Governor Deal basically (laughs) saying, I've been a successful governor. Uh, This is all the good things that we have done during our time. Let's pat ourselves on the back and, you know, get ready to go home, which is weird since he has a whole session left where he could do more stuff. Uh, So I don't know if this is him being... Uh, political realist and we should like commend him for accepting reality that he's probably not going to be able to push through some other piece of landmark legislation but it is also strange to me that he's sort of just like laying down his arms and just (laughs) kind of being i'm gonna be here as a secondary figure to uh david ralston and the other leaders of the state i just thought that part was quite weird with with one caveat which is the amazon thing which we're going to get to in a minute so yeah yeah i think this is um the most important sort of political outcome of this speech is I do feel like Governor Deal kind of handed over the reins of Georgia politics to David Ralston this year. And I'm not sure if that was deliberate or or what the cause was, but David Ralston, as we talked about last week, is pushing a lot of really significant legislative priorities from his perch as Speaker of the House Uh, He's been the leader on the Rural Development Council, and he's been the voice behind pushing the state to take a more aggressive role in financing transit in the metro Atlanta region. And there is sort of a nice balance to these two things, to the rural development element that would help rural Georgia and to money for transit that would help attract a big company like Amazon. Uh, But it would also help attract other businesses to the state and, and connect people to economic mobility. Um, A lot of this inequality research that's come out has shown that Atlanta is one of the uh, least economically mobile and more unequal places in the country. So so both of these things, I think, are are good things that the speaker's working on. But Governor Deal didn't take his speech to either champion those things and call on Ralston and the legislature to get these things done. He didn't even really mention them which seemed kind of odd to me, but it, it basically, I think, was a signal that 
these are Ralston's priorities. And I don't know if, you know, the, the governor and the speaker have been really tightly knit on the issue of the adoption bill. And I don't know if there is sort of a broader relationship that they're trying to work on here. Um, Cause they've been tight knit in opposition to Casey Cagle, who's running for governor. And I've sort of thought that allowing the speaker to rise to the top of Georgia politics right now, especially with these two big issues makes David Ralston maybe the leader of Republican politics and state politics next year if he has a Republican governor across the hall working with him in the legislature. Yeah, I think that might be true because, you know, we talked with a couple of our Republican friends who, uh, for their safety, will make anonymous. But, you know, we were asking, like, what what's up with Governor Deal kind of just, like, not pushing a lot of stuff. You know, is he facing some... Uh, political consequences for some of the vigos he's done, you know, wh- like what is going on there. And uh, from the people that we talked to, it seemed that Governor Deal hadn't really done anything to make himself unpopular and remain quite popular among Republicans. So this doesn't seem to be a move of him sort of accepting the, you know, fact that he's on his way out and he's unpopular. I think it's quite possible that you are right and that this is an attempt for him to let Ralston step into the limelight and kind of be the uh, figure going into the future uh, that the state can rally behind regardless of who wins the governor's race. And that, you know, if that's the strategy, then there's, it's a, it could be a smart move uh, based on the, the couple special elections that we've had. There's an outside chance that David Ralston could no longer be speaker in 2018, but I think that is uh, yet to be seen and still not 100% likely uh, at all. So it's quite likely that David Ralston will be the speaker going into 2019, but it's not guaranteed that the governor of Georgia will be a Republican. So on that front, you have the benefit if the next governor is a Republican that Nathan Deal might not like, then elevating Ralston who he's had a much better working relationship with would probably be a good idea. And then if it's a Democrat governor, still probably a good idea. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an insurance policy for Governor Deal, particularly if Hunter Hill or Michael Williams were to be the uh, Republican that may come out of this governor's race victorious because he's been, Nathan Deal has uh, been reluctant to cut the state income tax completely uh, because he said, you know, having the tax structure remain basically as it is has been part of the reason that that Georgia's been able to maintain their AAA bond rating throughout the Great Recession and the aftermath. We're one of the few states to do that, but that's what they're calling for. And so, so if Ralston sort of agrees with Governor Deal on some of these things and and carries most of the political power early in the next governor's administration. Um, some of these things that the governor would prefer a subsequent Republican governor not do, Ralston might be the enforcement behind keeping those policies where Deal would like them to be. But let's talk a little bit about Amazon here. The one thing that felt like a hole in the speech to me uh, was the issue of Amazon. And Governor Deal has said, has stated his position, which is that right now the legislature shouldn't be considering any uh, special tax proposals or, or any legislation at all related to the Amazon decision, and that the governor, uh, he said at the Eggs and Issues breakfast earlier this week, hosted by the Chamber of Commerce, 
that he would call a special session of the legislature to set up Georgia law to be as competitive as it can possibly be to land the second headquarters of Amazon. So it does, Luke, kind of feel like there is potentially one more legacy item there if Georgia ends up in the top three of finalists for the Amazon headquarters. Uh, but if they don't, it, it really does look like it might be a light year for the governor. Yeah. Uh, first, I'd like to note, it's terrifying that one company uh, has this much power over the state that they might uh, make us <laughs> call a special session just to get an office of theirs uh, here. So uh, knowing that, you know, moment of existential terror uh, towards Amazon. Uh, yeah, I think I think it could be a light year for him. But also, I think in a lot of ways, it's matched what Deal has done since he got reelected. Uh, Deal had, I thought, a lot of interesting ideas going into his reelection. A lot of them I disagreed with. Some of them I didn't. Um, you know, we talked a lot about him potentially reforming the QBE formula is like one thing that like he campaigned on really hard, and then we never saw anything with it. So, in a lot of ways, he seems to have been on cruise control since he won re-election and now has started to slowly just slow everything down. So I, it guys just seems like he's just trying to wind everything down and leave on a high note and feel like he's done every big thing he can do. And is just trying to kind of like round out the edges on his way out. And I mean, if that's the strategy, I think that, um, might be, might be a good thing, uh, for Democrats because it would, one, prevent a lot of bad things from happening and, you know, a rewrite of the QBE formula that's not in our favor or something like OSD happening or any big significant changes to the tax code or any other major policy change in Georgia. So in that front, it's probably one good thing for us and two, probably a good thing for the state since we have progressive views. But two, if you're Nathan Deal and you have accomplished a couple things uh, that um, you know, you're proud of, and that's an easy way to make sure nothing bad happens with them and kind of secure them and, you know, manage the executive branch of the state for one more year. Or try land at Amazon. Yeah, I think let's talk a little bit about Deal's speech was grounded in this metaphor of orchards of opportunity, and he talked about how he's done a lot of things in the policy realm where he's not going to be alive to see the consequences Um he would argue, I think, that this, that the the state's business environment really sets the state up for for better job growth in the long run than other states have had. He talked a lot about criminal justice reform and, and giving people who are willing to work for second chances, giving them an opportunity through the accountability courts that the state has set up to kind of put their lives back together, and how investments in education, both in K through twelve and in the technical college system of Georgia really set up our workforce um, to be one of the most competitive in the country and and to know that if you kind of go through the process in Georgia, if you graduate from high school and go to a technical college or go to one of our major universities, that you're that Georgia is going to be a place of economic opportunity um, and that the, the benefits of that are going to last long after the governor is gone. Luke, what do you think about some of these accomplishments that the governor has touted? I mean, not all of them are the sort of divisive conservative things that we've seen out of states like Indiana and North Carolina. There's a lot of things that I think Democrats in the state can be pretty happy with, with how the governor's tenure has gone, particularly on things related to technical colleges and criminal justice. 
I would do the exact same thing that uh, the minority leaguer Bob Trammell did uh, when he was talking about the governor's accomplishments, which is like, yes, like our finances are, you know, much better than they were when he uh, came in. He has done some stuff that most Democrats would agree on with criminal justice reform. And uh, there are several other things that Deal has done that he should be logged for, just like almost any, you know, executive or legislator has done some things that are good. However, unfortunately for uh, the state and for Nathan Deal, there are a lot of glaring omissions to uh, things he needed to do and just opportunities that he let slide by for blatant political reasons. The fact that we have not expanded Medicaid and... 600,000 people are suffering because of that or are without health insurance that deserve and need health insurance is something that will be a you know black mark on his legacy, and there's really not much he can do about it um, in his final term unless he pushes that really hard, which since uh, I don't think he mentioned it at all in his speech, I don't think he will. Again, <laughs> we already mentioned it a couple times, but his failure to fully fund the QBE formula or reform it in a way to make it more equitable for the state to make a lot of investments for the future that are desperately needed to make hope work better i mean he just missed out on a lot of these things which are really weird especially on the education front because education is something that deal seems to care a whole lot about so i mean he's he's left a lot of things that would not have been difficult in the policy realm to get done like he knows how he could get 600 thousand more people on health you know in the healthcare system he just have to expand medicaid it's not like there was some budget crisis that prevented him from doing that that was a political decision that he made and so on that front i think governor deal yeah definitely not as bad as sam brownback doing you know way did you know what sam brownback did to the finances of kansas not as bad as mike pence was in indiana on the rights of lbgt individuals but that being said, he still failed in a lot of other very key, very important ways that the next governor is going to have to try to fix. And Governor Gil- Deal could have very easily solved a lot of those problems for them, but did not for a lot of political reasons. And so for that, I think that is an asterisk by his record, no matter how good and how much I agree with other things. This is sort of my underlying criticism of policymaking in the state broadly over the past decade is that I I would push back a little bit in that I don't think that these solutions are very easy. And even though Medicaid expansion is kind of a ready-made solution, I don't think it solves like all of our rural healthcare problems. It's definitely a start. um, And it's the right thing to do. You know, and then on the reforming the education funding formula, that was a a pledge that he made during his reelection that Governor Deal did. Um, But I think one of the things that's sort of lost in that discussion is, oh, that's like a big thing that the governor promised that he didn't get to. Um, I think he would say that they sort of reoriented their approach away from tackling the funding formula and on to this opportunity school district thing because the governor wanted to pursue a policy that he thought would make educational opportunity better for kids in in like lower income, poorer areas and in parts of the state where local school boards, he would argue, are the hurdle between these kids and a good education. Um, so I, I think that that I think he views that not as like a promise broken, but as they just sort of shifted directions. Um, but the thing that's lost in that and the thing that's lost 
in the Medicaid expansion conversation is the reason that we have this big push around rural development right now and, and infusing state money into rural communities is that we haven't moved on those things. And one of the byproducts of probably reforming the education funding formula is you give more money for kids in schools where they have high poverty rates. And a lot of those are in rural Georgia. And part of the Medicaid expansion thing is you you give coverage to people who live in rural areas who so that they can get coverage and keep the doors of rural hospitals open. And so a lot of this is grounded in Governor Deal hasn't made the progress on rural development that we need. And that's why David Ralston has stepped in with this commission to to propose how to do these things. And so looking forward, what I think we need to watch is does the speaker and the next governor and this legislature going forward, do they really tackle these difficult problems that are left on the table and these are things that Governor Deal hasn't really championed or hasn't really fixed during his tenure. Yeah, and and to be clear, I do want to like agree with you in that none of the solutions that we've talked about would be silver bullets to the problems that the state faces. However, Governor Deal had an opportunity to, instead of kicking the can down the road, move the ball forward, and he did not. And so on that, I think he deserves our criticism and i'm sure if he had expanded medicaid and he had you know added a lot more money to the qb formula so that these rural communities got the school funding that they needed i'm sure we'd still be here and be you know be able to say well deal could have done more you know so i mean that's that's fair to point out but i think on those fronts a lot of the reason why they did not get addressed is political rather than policy and so on that front that's where i'm the most frustrated because for example the transportation bill uh that you know governor deal was a big part of getting done like i have less criticism of that because that was a tough political issue and they at least moved the ball forward and improved things significantly now there definitely needed to be far more revenue raised to make the improvements that the state needs to see but at least they moved the ball forward (laughs) Instead yeah. of letting it stay stagnant. One more thing on Governor Dion, and then we'll get to the Democratic response. Um, the thing that stood out to me is is Governor Deal was really emotional in this his final speech, major speech before the legislature. Um, he was particularly choked up when he was talking about his wife, uh, First Lady Sandra Deal, I mean the work that she's done to support children's literacy around the state during her time as First Lady. Um, I think she's visited nearly 400 schools in the state. And if you pay any attention at all to, to what she's doing, she's almost always in classrooms. Um, and I, that was something that when he talked about this and, and he tried to without choking up and it, it made me a little emotional too. He was just so in awe of Sandra Deal and all of the work that she's done, uh, both as first lady and, and through the, you know, probably four or five decades that they've been married it was kind of nice to see because politics is really kind of a shithole right now. Um, and so I don't know. I just thought it was a nice thing to point out that uh, it was nice to see him wrapping up his career and, and reflecting on the role that his wife played and, and all of his staff and all of the support that he's had throughout his career. And, and it was really plainly clear that that, that meant a lot to him in that moment. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that, uh, all these public officials are just people and they are, you know, flawed and beautiful in all the way that every person is. So it is nice that 
we could take a moment to acknowledge the humanity of Nathan Deal. <laughs> and, you know, it's nice that he appreciates that work that she's done. And it's good that she's done that work because, you know, despite all the criticism that we just laid out of Deal in education policy, it is something that he sincerely cares about. And while uh, we can disagree on how he pursues the policies in that area, it is nice to see someone who actually sincerely cares about policy as compared to some of the... Uh, folks we're dealing with on the federal level who don't even know what policy is yeah um all right so let's talk a little bit about the democratic response um luke can you just let us know kind of what were some of the key policy themes and and some of the key ideas that came out of this speech from newly minted minority leader bob trammell yeah and um i i think the first thing to say is just to kind of reiterate what i was talking about before is what i really liked about this speech um is that it did not feel like a campaign speech to me it felt like a just like genuine acknowledgement of what was going on uh with the policy in georgia and that it was willing to like say governor deal like did some things that we agree with and you know (laughs) acknowledging the fact that we are the number one state to do business for like five years. And I, and I sort of just like thought it was funny for that talking point to sort of be embraced, but also be like, but that's not enough. Like you can't just ride that forever and be like, that's all we need to do as a state. And so, uh, Leaker Trammell really talked about a lot of the same things we've been talking about in that, you know, Georgia needs to expand Medicaid. We need to fully fund QBE talked about uh you know returning hope to having a needs-based element uh and then you know raising minimum wage and you know at the i think that is exactly the kind of focus that we need to be having in really concrete policy proposals that would affect a lot of people around the state positively and i think that is really really good that we're taking that focus and rather than trying to I think in authentically criticize Deal as a human being or criticize a lot of the things that he's done, you know, find places where we agree with him, compliment him on that, but still point out the glaring deficiencies in his administration and his tenure in failing to address those issues. Yeah, I think that there is some recognition among Democratic politicians in the state that, that broadly people in the state are relatively happy with how things are going at the state level and, and what the state is doing. Um, I think governor I deal question, is, I have a question for you on that. Um, oh, yeah. do you, do you think that's because we are a functioning state <laughs> and that like on the federal level, like it's just literally not working. Like, do you think like how big of a deal do you think that is? Because I mean, one thing that I think we've talked about a lot here is that like Georgia like works like it, it, it we don't agree with the policy that gets done every year. A lot of times we don't, but like we pass our budget, <laughs> we yeah. you know meet our constitutional obligations. We don't like have policy talks break down because someone refers to Albany as a shithole or something like that. So I'm yeah, sorry, I, Albany. Just just as a note, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I picked you, but I had to pick someone. Um, and no, I I think that that plays a pretty big role in it. I mean, it's it's really easy to, you know, the bar is really low for that contrast to make us look uh, relatively functional compared to Washington, but also compared to a few other states. I mean, part of I think what has kept Governor Deal's approval ratings high is we haven't gotten bogged down in the 
uh, religious liberty issue in the way that Indiana and North Carolina had. And we haven't had some kind of budget crisis in the way that Louisiana had. Um, because on the way out the door, Louisiana, uh, former governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal had all these like crazy budget gimmicks that weren't, you know, were basically lies in their budget. And then they, like us have to produce a balanced budget. And it basically screwed over the subsequent administration when they had to kind of unwrap all that stuff that they, that was going on. We haven't had that kind of stuff in the state. And so I do think that to some extent, that plays a role. I think it is interesting. Some of the most popular governors in the country are actually some of these blue state Republicans. Uh, Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts and Larry Hogan in Maryland. They have like crazy high approval ratings because I, I presume it's because Democrats think eh, things are probably okay. And then Republicans are like stoked that they have a Republican governor in Massachusetts. Uh, but I think deals ratings are among the higher, the highest of any governor who is a red a red state Republican who would have significant Democratic opposition. Um, and so I think that that's pretty interesting is he's probably more popular on average um, than some of these other red state Republicans. Um, but the thing I would ask you, Luke, is it is interesting to see, you know, Trammell talked about some of the same things that Democrats have been talking about for quite a while he was relatively embracing of, of our status as the number one state to do business. And I think that the the moment of like the resistance and this sharp tone that Democratic politics has taken against President Trump and Republicans in Washington, that was not evident at all in, in Leader Trammell's speech. And so I guess the question for you is, is would Democrats make a mistake to not be more oppositional to Republicans or do they need to be more cognizant of the fact that uh, people are relatively happy about how things are going in Georgia? I need to firmly, you know, yet again, stake out the fact I am a law student. I am a white guy from South Georgia. So like my experience of living in Georgia and living in America is very different than some people. So with that firm acknowledgement in mind, in my experience, it would be kind of insane to treat Nathan Deal as if he was Donald Trump. Like, I don't think that would work. I don't think anyone would be receptive to that. And actually, it would probably be destructive because there have been plenty of opportunities during Deal's administration with Ralston as speaker that Democrats have had a really productive relationship, have been integral to some of the bigger things that the state has done. If we do expand Medicaid in any way, shape, or form this year, it will happen because of Democratic support and the fact that we have been very uh, passionately, but very deliberately been pushing it and not pushing it in a blatantly partisan, radical way. Um, I think acknowledging the facts on the ground are important. And if we're going to be able to win over the people of Georgia on the state level, it's going to require a unifying message and a positive message rather than a negative message. Now, like for the folks running for Congress, I give them the exact opposite advice and be like, do not pay attention to how happy people are here and, you know, really go after Washington and what's happening there. But, you know, on the state level, it's not as relevant, you know, and that that's, that's the, that's a thing that needs to be really firmly focused on. And I think you can be as passionate and fired up about, the lack of rural broadband in the same way that you're angry about Donald Trump being a racist 
but you have to message it in the appropriate way and you have to focus on it in the appropriate way and not be disingenuous. And, you know, that's, that's my perspective as a Democrat. There are some people that will disagree with me that, you know, will say that Nathan Deal's equally racist as Donald Trump is and that he should be called out as that. And there's been instances where that's questionable. Maybe he is. And there's other people that feel like um, there's way more to be done in the state and that we haven't really improved criminal justice or racial relations in any way uh, that we might feel. So it's it's a complicated thing, but at least to me, I feel like the strategy that's being employed is a good one, and I think it can be successful. And looking at the special elections we've had, the races that have focused on Georgia more and focused on the good things that are happening in the state and the bad and taking that on with a lot of passion and focus have done really, really well. And the state in the races that have been more about Donald Trump have not done as well. And so I think, I think you have to be balanced with it and address it in a reasonable way. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, that seems like the right decision in terms of being sort of a productive governing party. I don't, I am a little bit struck, a little bit challenged by how the party can corral under its tent the people that think that everything that's going on right now is just so utterly terrible that the mission of the party needs to be to burn everything down, to impeach Donald Trump, to shut the government down until they uh, pass a renewal of the DACA program, to not vote for any of Trump's appointees, and then and how that filters down to the legislature of whether or not the legislative Democrats should be trying to use any procedural tools necessary uh, to stop the function of Georgia government um, in an attempt to maybe shine a light on the things that are that are bad that are going on. I think in Georgia, we don't really have very many of those tools in the legislative minority. Um, but certainly the governor's campaign that's coming up could be an opportunity to signal a lot of displeasure and uh, you know, being really upset with how things are going. So I don't know. Yeah, I, think and, that- and I, th- I think that's an important distinction that people really do not pay enough attention to because in Georgia, it's not as bad and clear as it is on the federal level that you're in constant campaign mode. And there is a real difference between like, you know, during this three month period from January to March, sometimes April, we're here to actually do work and we're going to govern and that's what we're here to do. And then I don't think there's anything keeping them from changing their tone, changing their tactics when we enter the campaign season and going after everyone in a really aggressive way. And I think that's perfectly doable and perfectly acceptable and not dishonest to do that because one, you'll be running against different people and each state house candidate will be different than, you know, the governing administration as a whole. And I think that specificity will be important. And again, the campaigns that I think did well focused on that kind of stuff. So I don't I don't think this is like setting us in stone of what, you know, six months from now our campaign's gonna look like. Yeah, and I, I think it's just gonna be interesting to see how this question plays out in Democratic primaries because I, I can sense that 
you know, Democrats, I don't think that they have the the same numbers to create this problem for them, but a lot of what has pushed the Republican Party further to the right and further in this frenzy mode is that base voters on the Republican side didn't feel like their politicians were being aggressive enough with Barack Obama or representing their views. And so I think that there is, you know, some of the most passionate Democrats right now are ones that really hate Donald Trump and they have an outsized influence on the primary voting process. Um, And so I don't see, and this is probably a good way to transition into our second topic. I don't see a lot of like the potential to use that anger and that emotion from parts of the base irresponsibly out of either Stacey Evans or Stacey Abrams or any of the other statewide candidates that we have right now. And I think that there there are plenty of examples of Republicans who have taken the anger and the frustration of their base and used that pretty irresponsibly. Uh, Case in point is the presidency of Donald Trump. Um, And so I, I think that that has sort of been my concern of, you know, how do you invite people who are really passionate about what's going on right now to the table, but but help them kind of learn the ropes of, you know, not only do we complain about what we don't like here in politics, we also try to put together plans and ideas and create coalitions around the things that we actually want to get done to make this country and our state a better place. And so I think that they're, you know, that's, I think that's going to be a challenge for Democrats um, going forward in, in the Trump era. Um, yeah. Well, the- well, 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 real quick, I, I just say, um, I have a lot of faith in Democratic primary voters. Uh, They've surprised me in positive ways more times than they have not. So I think maybe some other states will have this problem, but I think the Democrats in Georgia are realistic and are genuinely pretty well-educated, especially the primary voters. And so I think they, you know, the people that come out and vote in in this state that are democrats have not disappointed me very many times so i think uh we'll have really strong really passionate candidates and i think that is what is important because i mean if you look at even like john Hossoff, who we've not talked about for quite some time on this show but like he was not like overly radical in his condemnation of Trump in the past couple months, you know, the first couple months of his administration. And there were people in that primary who were way more to the left than he was, and he still did fine. So I, I think there's going to be, there'll definitely be some tests, and I bet there will be uh, some folks who are a bit more destructive that may win, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, I, I have a lot of faith because. One thing that I think is true is that um, unlike the Republicans, the Democrats have a lot more policy consensus than the Republicans do. And so really our differences are almost entirely tonal. Like, how are you addressing the Republican Party? How are you trying to communicate with voters is like the way is a way bigger distance than do you support single payer or not? Because like most Democrats do now, you know, most Democrats support some gun control. Most Democrats support immigration reforming almost, you know, and and they, the like range of difference between those policy positions are pretty small. And it's almost, I wouldn't say entirely, but if you sincerely look at different candidates and not just go on what people on Facebook say, 
most candidates have very identical policy positions. And it's really a question of how are they addressing things? Well, one of those Democrats that Democratic primary voters are going to have the opportunity to choose from is Stacey Abrams. She's a Democratic candidate for governor. Y'all probably know that by now. We've we've Ooh, talked to her a little bit. That before. transition, man. That transition. Yeah, that's I've been working on that one uh, yeah. through your entire monologue. No, so Stacey Abrams, she has a new economic mobility plan. Um, I wrote about this for the website, so there's going to be a link to an article with all of the details in it. Um, in the show notes for this show. And if you get on our website, um, you can find it there. Uh, But basically, she offers up a basket of policies that is intended to improve economic mobility for uh, lower and lower middle income Georgians. Uh, Probably the biggest proposal in this basket of options is a state level uh, Georgia earned income tax credit. It's also known as the Georgia Work Credit. The Georgia Budget and Policy Institute has been talking about this for a little while. But basically, that's an idea that uh, copies federal law, basically, where uh, for people who are working, if they are working at low incomes, they can get a big of a bit of a bigger refund in their taxes because they are they are working and earning money. And it, it just helps the the economic security of lower middle income people. Another issue that is kind of technical in nature, but is something that she tackles in this proposal is the issue of wage theft. Um, there basically are holes in the law or, or loopholes that get taken advantage of for a lot of people who are like tipped workers who um, or are shift workers, they're paid hourly. Um, for workers who are like not paid overtime or don't receive the tips that they're entitled to at their job, um, this would enact new state level protections to make sure that employers are not stealing from their workers. And then probably the third biggest component of this uh, proposal is the cradle to career savings program. Um, this is a option that the state could use to create savings accounts for lower and lower middle income people. And the state can seed that investment uh, with uh, either public or a combination of public and private dollars so that um, young people can have a savings account that can grow as they grow. And then they can use uh, the proceeds of that account to help afford college or any other kind of post-secondary education. Um, That is what her savings program is tagged to um, in terms of the the thing that it's used for. So Luke, just off the top, what do you think of Abrams' focus on economic mobility and some of these ideas that she's bringing to the table to help uh, Georgians move up the income ladder? I mean, I think that's a really critical thing for any campaign running in Georgia to be focused on because around the country, but definitely in Georgia, that's a huge problem. It's incredibly difficult for people to move up uh, economically speaking. And so I'm happy to see that this is a focus of her campaign and, you know, would like other campaigns to focus on as well. I mean, we've discussed at length uh, the earned income tax credit, or as we call it in Georgia, the Georgia work credit. Um, So I really hope that that is a policy that can be unified around because as we've discussed before, it's a policy. It's one of the few policies that Paul Ryan and Barack Obama both liked. So on that front, I'm happy to see her pushing that. And I really hope that we can, um, you know, see some progress there and hope that this starts a discussion, which that was one thing I wanted to mention to you since, you know, you read through the proposal and you, have uh, a bit more background in policy than I do. Do you think 
putting out these proposals for Abrams is a good strategy? Like, do you think this is going to start a conversation? Or is this sort of a repeat of what Hillary was running through, which was that she put out really great policy proposals that you and I discussed and thought were awesome and had a lot of potential, but it never really broke through and became part of the narrative. I don't, from a campaign sense, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think that the fact that Hillary Clinton had all of those policy proposals and that they didn't break through, that that was the big failure. It was all of the other issues with that campaign that dogged them, that prevented, I think, a lot of these policy ideas from breaking through. I don't really think Abrams has those sort of political baggage, uh, you know, along the lines that Hillary Clinton had. The thing that stands out to me is we, Georgia Democrats, I think, to some extent, have kind of been a broken record on like the four things they'd like to see. And, you know, no offense to the people who put together Trammell's speech, but they are sort of the same four things that we've been talking about. QBE and education and fully funding that Medicaid expansion, minimum wage and need based aid for uh, colleges. And I think to some extent, we all like agree that those are good things that we need to do. And I don't, I don't know to some extent, maybe we just need a new way to say those things or, or some sort of like bright, shiny idea um, that isn't in the realm of those things, but that could be talked about and people could get excited about the thing though, that stands out to me about these proposals that she puts out is, and I've been thinking a lot about this. John Dickerson, formerly now of face the nation talks a lot about the qualities that, presidents need to govern and to succeed in the role of being president. And then part of what we should do as a country is think about how can we set up a presidential selection process that actually measures the aptitude of people to do the job as president. One of the things I think is good about these proposals that Abrams puts out is she demonstrates a lot of understanding of these issues She not only demonstrates just the fact that she can pick out the four things on the bullet point list that Georgia Democrats support, but she actually has sort of a deep understanding of some of the causes of the problems that we have in this state. And a lot of what she's done in these proposals is she has really well-rounded ideas that propose some big new program. And like the earned income tax credit part is, is the one that plays the role here. But then there's a lot of other little changes that can happen within the context of programs that the state already runs or at the level, at the agency level of just by like changing the focus of people in our executive agencies and in terms of how they implement Georgia programs and interact with the people that use these programs. And then the other thing that stands out to me is a real focus on inclusive policy ideas, not only for this one, but for all three that we've talked about. Um, She's included she's included ideas that benefit communities that are typically left out of these discussions. She wants to help women uh, get uh, green energy jobs through this pink to green best practices model, which basically helps women uh, connect with these jobs that require like engineering and STEM backgrounds. She has diversity targets for after-school robotics programs. And then this proposal includes uh, strengthening workplace discrimination laws, making sure that people who work in the state executive branch, uh, both men and women are paid equally for equal work, and ensuring access for people who have disabilities to the opportunity to work. And those are kind of, those are never things that we have like big political fights about. 
But there are also things that historically these proposals haven't been cognizant of people of color or people with disabilities. And her proposals, all of them have done that. And so I think that in terms of the test of how ready is she to be governor of Georgia, she's got well thought out, well rounded proposals that are inclusive to communities and groups that haven't been a part of the policymaking process before. And I think it says a lot about her ability to do the job as governor should she get the job. Yeah, I think it also is interesting because, you know, hearing you go through that made me realize that her policy proposals are matching much of her public statements as well, uh, as we discussed on the show a couple weeks back or maybe before the the holiday break. But um, Abrams has routinely used that story of her family having trouble getting into the event at the governor's mansion to... Uh, articulate her reason for running for governor and her policy proposals very much so reflect that in her uh, deep concern and well well placed concern in the lack of access that minority populations in Georgia have to businesses and you know I know there was a report the other day that was saying <laughs> that minority owned businesses in Georgia are practically non-existent when it comes to who's getting access to capital and projects. And so on that front, it's really, really important that Abrams is focusing on that because it's going to be critical for the state moving forward to get that done. And it, you know, sort of swings back around, even though there was probably absolutely no coordination between Trammell and Abrams, it kind of swings back around what Trammell was saying and that Georgia has been successful in a lot of ways, but that's being a focus not on individuals and the people of Georgia, but rather the top line figures and the businesses. And uh, Abrams seems to be trying to address the cost of that focus by having these proposals that will hopefully help uh, individuals more than it will help businesses. The one thing that I didn't see discussed here, didn't see discussed in kind of the Rural Reform Commission from Uh, Republican leaders, or I guess that's a a bipartisan group of leaders in the legislature, is the idea of subsidized employment. Um, And we'll save the wonky details for another blog post I have coming up. But basically, the idea here is that in places where we have struggled persistently with high unemployment uh, in communities of people of color, in rural areas where the unemployment has increased despite an improving economy, um, one of the things that government can do is just subsidize work and to say to businesses that are there, hey, I know you're having trouble hiring people because you know the economy is slower where you are, but what if you hire 10 people and the government will pay half of the wage that you would pay these 10 people? The earned income tax credit that Abrams proposes is great for low-income people who have jobs, who work but earn low incomes. Um, but one of the challenges that the state has in rural areas and in in some places with a lot of people of color is just that there aren't jobs available. And so I think that we need a broader discussion around how to improve employment in those areas. And there's a lot of wraparound ideas, and, and we talk a lot about healthcare and improving opportunity and education. But one of the things that I don't think we have really talked about it all that deserves, I think, more airtime is how can government more directly create opportunities for employment for people and subsidized jobs is one way to do that. 
Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about that on the blog later this week. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll tweet that out when I, when I get that finished. But, um, I think that that is one thing that's sort of missing from this discussion. All right. But I think with that, we will leave our discussion of, uh, Stacey Abrams' proposal there. You can find more details in the blog on our website, and we will talk a little bit more about subsidized employment going forward. Uh, But with that, I think we're going to move on to our third and final topic this week. Um, So there's a case before the Supreme Court right now that is challenging Ohio's process of maintaining their voter rolls. Um, And challengers to this law basically say that the process that Ohio uses, which sends people who don't vote a notice for them to update their registration information and make sure that they're still voting and voting in the correct district and then removes them from the rolls if they both don't respond to that notice and don't vote in the next two federal elections. Uh, Challengers are saying that that process is a violation of federal law and that it violates people's right to not vote um, and for there to be no repercussions for not voting. Uh, But the state of Ohio and and defendants in this case have said that this is a way, this is really the only way that they can kind of responsibly manage their voter rolls um, to ensure that people are voting in the correct districts, that they stay registered where they live, and that their rolls are accurate uh, from election to election. Uh, We wanted to talk about this today because Georgia has a pretty similar process to Ohio. And so whatever the court decides about this process and whether or not it violates federal law is probably going to have some implication for Georgia law and may require the state to change their law, but also may make sure that people who've gotten caught up in getting these notices from Secretary of State Brian Kemp, and I, I know there were a bunch of notices that went out in Fulton County um, to voters that they, if they don't respond to these notices, they may not be removed from the rolls uh, in short order. Luke, let's get into this with a discussion of this concept of purging voters from the voter rolls. When I first came across this, I was a little bit skeptical of this argument that states shouldn't be able to remove people from the rolls if they've moved. Um, and that this activity for states is kind of challenging because sometimes people don't move and they don't tell anybody or or they move and they may not even know that they've moved outside of their district. And so they may not update their registration and the state has some responsibility to make sure those roles are accurate. But a lot of voting rights advocates in the state say that this process is discriminatory in impact, if not in intention. So what do you think about sort of the state's responsibility to manage their voting roles, but also make it easy for people to vote in the state? So to start off, I would say that I am in the camp of the stated goal is not the actual goal and that there's no, they've done nothing to give me, give me reasons to trust their intentions and how they act. Uh, in purging the voter rolls since uh, our own Brian Kemp and other Republican secretary of states and governors throughout the nation have routinely bragged about how they have used these methods to win elections. So putting that statement firmly in a box, if you are trying from scratch to create a way to ensure the accuracy of your voter rolls, I feel like purges of this style using these methods should be very, very low on your list of reasons, I mean, of of strategies to use to do this. Because if you wanted to constantly get 
updates of when people moved, of when people, you know, left the state, things like that, it would not be difficult to integrate the records of other things into the voting records because people routinely will interact with their state government in ways that are very easy to track and are already being tracked that they could use to supplement the process of looking into people's voter registration. You know, one that's mentioned a lot is the DMV. People have to interact with the DMV way more than they want to, and uh, it would not be that hard to have when people update their DMV information for them to just be opting into updating their voter registration information at the same time. That would not be that difficult. Um, I don't know how big of a problem having people that are no longer in your state or people that have deceased on the roll for a couple elections, but I feel like that's probably not a huge problem and it does not require building an infrastructure and paying for an infrastructure to do these mailings and try to get this information back and to look through this information to fix all these things. So, you know, that's just, it does not seem like this is a sincere, honest strategy to address the problem of having accurate information and accurate voter rolls. So with that in mind, I don't have a whole lot of faith in uh, the logic and the argument behind the state's case on this, and I'm hoping that the Supreme Court will not either. I don't, I had, I'm a little more skeptical um, in, from a legal perspective, this case really comes down to how the court is going to decide to read a couple of federal voting laws that are that seem somewhat in conflict and I don't think we have to get into all the details here but there is you know if you if you look up this case online there is a discussion of whether or not um a requirement that says people cannot be removed from the rolls for the failure to vote if these processes that are triggered by people's failure to vote but are completed when they don't respond to the notices that they're sent or don't vote in subsequent in two subsequent elections, whether or not that fits a very sort of technical, narrow reading of this law. Um, and so that was the, the court in oral arguments, they seemed pretty skeptical that Ohio's process violates the law. And so I think that what you're likely to see at the end of this case is that the the process is upheld, but it doesn't take away the policy reason, the policy necessity of making it easier to vote. And so I do think that it is challenging for states to maintain accurate voter rolls. Um, I don't we don't see tons of stories like this, um, but there was a story out of Virginia that I think over a hundred people were voting in the wrong districts uh, because they were they moved and they weren't told that they should be voting in different districts and, and it was basically an administrative error. I think in a lot of cases there isn't malice in people's intent here. It's just, you know, we have 180 House districts in Georgia, 56 Senate districts. Uh, we have a lot of boundaries that overlap in weird ways. So you you may not have the same school board member as your neighbor, but you have the same state rep as your neighbor. And so a lot of that is very confusing. And I think that's why states need to be careful about how they do this. Uh, but I think it falls under the bucket of no matter what the court decides in this instance, there is a policy necessity for making voting easier. Um, and so I think that that's you know where if we're looking this at this as as Democrats and as as people who support 
people's right to vote. Um, the discussion may not really need to be on the intent behind these laws, but but needs to be on policy changes that can make voting easier. Um, so, Luke, I know this is something you think about a lot, but what are some ways we can make it easier for folks to vote? I mean, you know, there's a whole lot of ways uh, that would be easier to vote. One, if you're sincerely interested in getting more up-to-date, accurate voting information, then have same-day voter registration so that if anyone shows up uh, wanting to vote that day, that they can update their information right then and there and then go ahead and have the right to vote. So you're accomplishing both goals at the same time. Uh, Another you know, way you can do it is a vote by mail system. There's a couple other states that uh, have adopted that and have not had mass calamities of voter fraud or anything along those lines. So that's a pretty easy uh, way to do that. And, you know, uh, eliminating voter ID laws would do a lot to help uh, restore access to voting because, um, you know, while I earlier mentioned uh, how many people uh, do have access to DMV and have to go to the DMV more than they'd like to, there are plenty of people that don't. And so that's uh, an oversight as well. So, so, you know, there are plenty of people who are 100% able to vote and should have the right to vote in uh, the United States, but don't have a driver's license. So uh, voter ID laws really do a lot to hamper their turnout. So, I mean, those are the big things that you could do um, to improve the system. Uh, the one other huge one that we should do has already kind of been tangentially mentioned, but just the idea of automatic voter registration, that you automatically are put into the voter registration system through you know interacting with the DMV or some other state agencies. Uh, and that makes it a lot easier to keep track of who is able to vote and make sure that their information is accurate. So those are just some of the things that you uh, could advocate for. Um, All of them would make it uh, much, much easier to vote and uh, continues to baffle me why we have not done it for both good governance reasons and for uh, patriotic reasons of believing in the importance of uh, everyone's right to vote and to help, you know, choose the direction of the country. And is this politically, um, is this a winning issue for Democrats to run on? I know, you know, Republicans seem to see the voting procedures and, and anything that they can tinker with in voting and drawing districts and gerrymandering and things like that as a source for them to cement their political advantage. And we haven't really seen any like comparable gimmicks from Democrats sort of taking advantage of every little spot in the uh, voting system that they can, with the exception of there are some uh, Democratic-led states that have gerrymanders in the same way that Republicans do. Uh, but they don't take advantage of like every little bit of voter registration law that Republicans seem to. Is the, is that a bad strategy from Democrats? Or do we, uh, do we do better by defending anybody's right to vote no matter who they vote for? That's a very complicated question that has a lot of different tangents we could go down, so I'm going to try to keep it as focused as possible. Republican voters are far more interested in structural dynamics of government. Uh, you know, One thing that we heard a lot during the 2016 election, that a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because he would appoint a Republican Supreme Court justice. And that's, I think, part of the reason why Republicans have been so successful at rigging the system, because their voters care about it and they care about it, and it's something that they like to brag about. Whereas if Democrats 
were in control of the House and Senate because of gerrymandering, we would never brag about it. We would feel guilty and bad about it. So um, on that front, I think uh, <laughs> that gives us the moral high ground, which I think is important. Um, I don't know if it's something that honestly energizes our voters in the way that it energizes the Republicans voters. So on that front, I don't know if viewing it through the lens of campaigning is really where we're going to see a lot of success, but I think it is an important issue. And I'm happy that we are addressing it because so many of the other things that we are fighting for are about the rights of individuals and about the access to the system, whether it's the healthcare system, the educational system, or the voting system. So to be ideologically honest and consistent, this is an important issue for us. And I think in the end, uh, you know, the arc of history will point in the right direction and we will be rewarded for uh, pushing for this access. And even though at the moment it's good for us to have more people have access to voting, I hope that... Um, progressives would keep those values if the opposite's ever true um and in the spirit of of our uh praise of stacy abrams proposals and always being inclusive of communities that aren't really at the forefront of these policy discussions another couple of things that we could do that i think are worth mentioning here are ensuring that people with disabilities have access to the vote. Um, that make, that means ensuring that every precinct in this state has, is accessible by people with disabilities. Um, I don't have any numbers off the top of my head. I'm sure Abrams will come out with a proposal saying X percent of precincts don't have accessible meet accessibility requirements for people with disabilities. But that, that is something that I think is important that we can do. And then another thing that I think is really important that has been central to liberal discussions of the criminal justice system in recent years is ending felon disenfranchisement. Um, in many states, people who are convicted of felonies are then, uh, they lose the right to vote. They either lose it temporarily while they're serving their sentence or, the, or in some states they may lose it permanently. Uh, Georgia's policies are not as severe as some other states. Um, we, we prevent uh, just under 7% of voting age African Americans from voting because of their uh, felony convictions. But in some of our other states, including many of our neighbors, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida, in all of those states, more than 50, 15% of voting age African Americans can't vote because of their state's felon disenfranchisement laws. Um, there's a lot of sort of subsequent consequences of not being allowed to vote for for people who've committed felonies but one is just that you are made to feel like you aren't really fully a citizen of this country it's it's kind of like being told that your country of origin is a shithole um so bring it back around yeah i think i've actually managed to curse in every segment of this show now because of this story <laughs> congratulations um, but yeah i mean that's that's another another impact of felon disenfranchisement that I think goes a little unnoticed is that the government is telling people who've committed felonies that they aren't, you know, allowed to redeem themselves in some instances. And and our criminal justice reforms in Georgia, led by Nathan Deal and, and bipartisan group of lawmakers, have basically said that we are a state that believes in second chances, uh, provided you're willing to work for them and, and willing to straighten things out. 
Um, and so I think that we, you know, people who've committed felonies should be allowed to vote in this state. Um, and that's a way in which we could make it easier uh, for people who've made mistakes to uh, get to the polls. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's a really important thing. Um, I think, you know, I'm happy that Georgia is one of the states that allows you to regain your voting rights. So that part is very positive, but um, that's definitely a change that we need to see around the uh, country, and I hope we do. Uh, but with that, I, I think we're going to leave that discussion there for this week. Um, so thanks for tuning in for another episode of Peach Pod, and we will have more from the legislature for you next week, including uh, taking a look at the governor's budget and what uh, kind of budget the state's going to come up with this year. Uh, we're going to talk more about that next week. Uh, but for now, we'll leave this there. So, Luke, thanks for another fun episode of Peach Pot. Yeah, thank you. This was good. And uh, we will talk to you all next week. Bye, everyone. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.